You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 24 through 28, Lord willing. If you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, with you, please uh, use the notes provided for you uh, in your bulletin. Uh, There's a copy of the scriptures in them. And then also, if you're online and you're watching, even if you're present here and you have a smartphone and you've downloaded the YouVersion Bible app, that's Y-O-U-Version, uh, you can go to the More tab after you download it, uh, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and click on today's sermon title. And there, m- much of the notes, quotes, and references that's in uh, our notes will be provided for you as well. You can see it on your phone and save it on your phone and use it for uh, further reflection this Advent season. We're continuing a a brief sermon series uh, labeled Advent, and in John chapter 1, verses 24 and 28, I want to look at how preparation for Advent ends. We talked about last week how it begins. It begins with repentance, but repentance is not the whole story. And in fact, if you don't move past repentance, you will fall short of the genuine, real, true meaning of Advent and Christmas. So we've got to follow up that two-part series. So this is Advent preparation ends, John chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. You know that at Christmas we're actually theologically celebrating your birthday too. You may not ever even think about it that way. I like how Leo the Great put it. He said, the birth of Christ is the source of life for Christian folk. And the birthday of the head, remember Jesus is the head of the church, is also the birthday of the body, is it not? Although every individual that is called has his own order. We all come to Christ at different times. And all the sons and daughters of the church are separated from one another by intervals of time, the church through the ages. Yet as the entire body of the faithful, being born in the font of baptism, is crucified with Christ in his passion, raised again in his resurrection. Remember this, in Christ theology, we're buried with him in baptism, we're dead to sin, we've been raised to new life because of his resurrection. Well, think of this, he goes one place further, and placed at the right hand, in his ascension. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ. Leo goes one step further. He says, and so with him are they born in his nativity. That at Christmas, we're celebrating us being born again by virtue of his birth and coming to earth. So how should we commemorate? How should we celebrate his birth, which subsequently has to do with our spiritual rebirth? In today's Bible passage, the religious leaders of Jesus' day want to discover by what authority John the Baptist is baptizing Jewish people. Now, you may say, what's the big deal about that? We'll talk about it in just a moment, so hang on. The religious leaders wonder if John is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, that would fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about a God king, or if he, was an, if he was Elijah, this famous prophet that lived 900 years ago in Israel, or if he was, quote, the prophet with a capital T, which goes back to a prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that God would send somebody that every word that came out of his mouth was the, was the words of God. 
And if you remember from last week, John denies every single identity. He goes, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the chosen one. I'm not the Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And so they're wondering, well, what justifies your preaching and your baptism? Why are you out here on the banks of the Jordan River? Crowds are coming to hear John preach, and John is dunking them left and right. Despite the very tangible effects of this preaching ministry, John, he remains unaffected by the success. (laughs) He's not enamored with himself. He is conscious only that he is preparing the way for the Christ, for the Messiah. In fact, he says he's not the messianic figure and that he's just a voice. Isn't that amazing? I'm just a voice. I'm trying to call people's attention to the Savior. And so he preached a message of repentance, turning from sin and anticipating the Christ And the way to signify that you have chosen to do that was through a baptism of repentance. So why still baptized? Why now? Why is John on the banks of the Jordan calling people to baptize? And finally, dun, 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 we see their first appearance. The Pharisees had enough, and they come out to kill John, right? So let's look at John chapter 1, verses 24 and 28. And we're going to let John explain the authority behind his baptism. Why are you baptizing, John? Look at what it says in John chapter 1. And this is, just to make a distinction, this gospel of John is written by Jesus' best friend, the disciple or apostle John. John the Baptist is a different figure. Uh, John's a very popular name, so I just want to make sure you know. Verse 24, it says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees sent a delegation out to quiz John more, and he says this. So they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah, which is the Christ, or Elijah, or the prophet? In verse 26, he says, I baptize with water, John answered. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. It's a little cryptic, but this is rich, right? What is happening? The Pharisees often depicted in the New Testament as the bad guys. There's a few exceptions, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, but by and large, these are the guys in black hats. They were in an important sect of Judaism. They were scrupulous about observing every minute detail of the law, and and specifically the way they understood it. And they even established, and this is where you're going to see them get into, you know, verbal uh, exchanges with Jesus, is they put up an oral tradition, a spoken, spoken commandments beyond the written word of God around the law of God in, in, in hopes that if people would listen to them, they wouldn't break God's commands. And what they didn't realize is, well, and I think they probably did realize, but Inintentionally or unintentionally, they placed burdens on the people that God never placed on the people. All right? And their whole point is if you'll listen to us, you really won't break God's commands. That's the concept. So they put their own traditions in conflict with the word of God. And Jesus pointed out how those traditions, their earthly commands, hindered people from living actually in accordance with God's written word. Jesus is constantly going to point it out. Josephus, he's an, a, a Palestinian historian at, at or about the time of Jesus, within the first century. He tells us that he estimated there were about 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day. And they would meet in like fellowship groups, small groups, and control the teachings of the synagogues in the country of Israel. So just think of it like this, like, and the way I uh, try to help people understand it. Just like there's certain like Reformed or Arminian circles within the Southern Baptist Church, right? We all kind of have our camps. My whole point is you can see the Pharisees as like a subsection of Judaism. 
and they would influence what was being taught in the churches every Saturday, so to speak. Now, they're coming then with this authority. This is like an authority issue. Why are you preaching to our people, the people we teach, the people we influence every day, that they need to be baptized? Now, you say, why is that so such a bad thing for John to call these people to a baptism of repentance? Baptism was not a new practice in Judaism. But catch this. It was the regular rite, the custom, of the admission of converts from other religions. When a conversion took place of like a Gentile, the males of a Gentile family were circumcised, and both sexes, male and female, would both be baptized into Judaism. And for those, the males who refuse circumcision, of course, they're called in the book of Acts, God-fearing Jews. They don't go all the way into Judaism. And the other unique part about this is that this baptism was self-administered by the Gentiles. In a sense, the Gentiles were ceremonially unclean. Jews wouldn't touch them yet. They would not have fellowship with them yet. And so when a Gentile converted to Judaism, they would undergo circumcision if they're males, and then both all people in the family would go and be baptized, a self-administered baptism. And when they came up out of the water, what did the Jews do? Welcome to the family. All right? Now, you've got to remember this, though. This is a purification ritual for the Gentile world. And what is John doing? He's baptizing Jews. And he's doing it. It's not self-administered. He's dunking Jews who are, quote, already a part of God's covenant community. This is radical. This is why the Pharisees cannot understand. What are you doing? The novelty in John's case and in the sting of his practice was that he applied to the Jews the ceremony that had only been appropriate with the Gentiles coming to the faith. As Jews were prepared to accept the view that Gentiles were defiled and needed cleansing, John himself was administering that baptism in very much the same way. You too need cleansing. That's what he's preaching to them. But to put Jews in the same class as Gentiles from the Pharisees' perspective, this was horrifying. Further, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He makes it clear. Not just a ritual cleansing in the Jordan. The Jews were already God's people, especially when those baptized were often circumcised Jews in good standing in the synagogue and temple. By reporting that John asked Jews to be baptized in an act of conversion, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're declaring, you ready? That John treats Jews as if they were pagans, which was unheard of. This involved an, a gigantic assumption on John's part of saying, who gives you the right to do this? Now, do you understand why they're so upset about his baptism? Why are you baptizing good standing Jews in synagogues that we rule over? John's baptism, the first kind of reply, he goes, I baptize with water, <laughs> okay? And he throws his hands in there. I baptize with water. Again, this is a ritual act that demonstrates repentance and anticipation of the Messiah or the Christ. The gospel writers clarify that John's immersion was distinct from ritual washing because it indicated repentance and acceptance of John's message. You'll find in the Old Testament that there's, quote, other baptisms, but they're generally, for instance, they'll be like, they'll baptize unclean pots. They'll put pots in water and say, now they're clean and can be used in the temple. You get the, the point. But very rarely was baptism applied to anybody everywhere. <laughs> and John's doing that. After immersion, here's what would happen. So the people would come down. Remember this. Jews would come down into the river. According to Mark 1, 5 and Matthew 3, 6, they would confess their sin, that they are sinners. And John would immerse them, and they would come out. And this is, I believe, what John did. Now, this is a little bit of my sanctified imagination. 
he would just say this, now go find Jesus. Look for the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You've confessed you're a sinner. You've come to repentance, but is repentance the whole story? No. If it does not terminate, if it does not end with Jesus, you haven't found forgiveness and salvation. So his work was completely preparatory. I'm just baptizing with water. I can't change you on the inside. I'm just getting, re- getting you ready for the person who can. John's baptism would be overshadowed by a greater person. After John the Baptist, Christian baptism, this is distinct. We're, we're, I need you to understand this. If you've been baptized, you've technically not been baptized into John's baptism. You've been baptized into Christ's baptism. And there's a significant theological difference. Christian baptism expanded the meaning of John's baptism. It signified turning from death to life through the power of Jesus Christ. Death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection in victory and forgiveness of our sin. You understand, it's much more complete than John's baptism. What's being pictured? It's your turning away from sin to the living God, whose name is Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, now as we creep a little closer through the New Testament, the Apostle Paul emphasizes that there's only one baptism. There's only one immersion. Christian baptism becomes, listen to this church, the defining mark that set believers in Jesus the Messiah apart from people who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. Because believers called upon the name of the Lord at their immersion. I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is distinctly Christian. John's not doing this part. All right? This became the defining event of salvation. Can I, and let me, you say, why, why does this matter? Is it just because we have Baptists in our church name? No, because here's where I think Southern Baptists, particularly in our, quote, brand of Christianity where we've gone astray. I, I appreciate the revivalism that kind of swept through Christian circles 50, 60, 100 years ago where we have altar calls and sinners' prayers. I don't think there's anything inherently evil with them. I do think they can be manipulated just like anything else. But I need you to understand this. For the historic church for over 2,000 years, what marked you out as a believer is not that you raised your hand, said a prayer, came down an aisle, shook the preacher's hand, was that you got in the, in the water and in the name of Jesus, you were baptized from repentance of sin and then to, to believe that he's forgiven you into everlasting life. That's what sets you apart. And church, I mean this with due respect, Baptists, we need to get back to calling people to baptism. And it'll help you read your Bible better. You know why? Because all the apostles and the writers of the New Testament assume that every believer, if given the opportunity, will be baptized. They're not going to make statements like, well, hey, if you prayed that prayer, if you came down that aisle, they're not going to say that. They said this, were you not baptized? That becomes the defining mark. Hey, you were baptized. You died that day because you were buried with him in baptism. Why would you live in sin? Oh, oh, are you, are you, you, you live in fear? There's no hope? Did you not realize you were raised to newness of life and you have an inheritance there in the future? That all happened when? Where? Your baptism. Wow. Wow. When Martin Luther himself was holed up in a castle, translating the Greek Bible into German, which was a no-no at that time. He was doing this, and he struggled mightily with doubt and discouragement from what he understood to be the devil. He thought he was being spiritually attacked because here he is trying to put the word of God into the people's language. And he would be known to throw his ink pots, his pens. He'd be tormented. He'd have doubts about God's promises. And here's what people heard him saying over and over again to himself. This is so important. He said, I am What helped him remove his doubts? I am baptized. And notice the difference. He didn't say, I was baptized. He was saying, I'm in Christ. 
Martin Luther is dead. All I have before me is the righteousness of Christ. I am baptized. So when Satan throws temptations in our past and forgiveness in our face, what do we say? I'm baptized. I'm baptized. That's the old me. There's a new me. Our our baptism reminds us that we're not the focus of our lives, the universe, or the Bible. It points us to someone else. Our baptism tells us that we couldn't save ourselves. Right? We had to look to somebody else. Our baptism is this. It's our first evangelistic witness that we are sinners and we need a Savior and you need one too. Our baptism reminds us that Jesus has baptized us into the Holy Spirit. We have a relationship with God himself. That we are spiritually regenerated. That we're born again. That we're forgiven of all of our sins and made children of God and heirs of heaven. What a grace. Let us often think of the grace of baptism and return thanks to God for it. Now, I know, I anticipate, Josh, that sounds awfully close to making baptism equal to salvation. I want to make a distinction here. A.T. Robertson, the great, he was a grammar king and he was his his New Testament Greek grammar is like this thick. Listen to what he says and makes the distinction. If baptism is necessary for salvation, if it's necessary, or the means of regeneration, right, spiritual rebirth, then the sick, the dying, infants must be baptized, right? Got to baptize them quick. Or at any rate, something must be done for them if the real baptism, immersion in water, cannot be performed because of extreme illness or want of water. The Baptist contention, this is us, is to protest against the perversion of the significance of baptism as the ruin of the symbol. Baptism as taught in the New Testament is the picture of death and burial to sin and the resurrection to a new life. A picture of what has already taken place. And I believe that. When you repent of your sins and call upon Jesus as your Savior, that moment in your heart, you're regenerated, converted, justified. Okay? That second, I mean, it's a millisecond. You go from death to life, from Satan to God, from darkness to light. Okay? That's how fast justification and conversion happens. All right? It is not the means by which spiritual change, baptism, is not the means by which spiritual change is wrought. It is a privilege and duty, not a necessity. It is a picture that is lost when something else is substituted in its place. Think about this. If baptism is the actual regenerating factor, then you lose the significance of baptism's picture. Why are you celebrating the death and life of someone if it was about getting wet? So it it commemorates. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Some of you may go, whew, don't have to be baptized (laughs) to be saved. I want to remind you of just a wonderful scriptural example. When the Ethiopian eunuch was on his way back home and God translated the deacon evangelist Philip. Literally, Philip appeared and he's like, Go preach to that Ethiopian eunuch. And he goes up, and this Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 about this suffering servant, this man of sorrows. And he goes, who is this God? And Philip goes, that's Jesus. And Philip leads him to Jesus. And on the road, I mean, could you imagine, like, this is back to Ethiopia. You're probably going through the deserts. They see, like, an oasis of water. And listen to what the Ethiopian eunuch says in Acts 8.36. As they were traveling down the road, they came from some water. The eunuch said to Philip, He says, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Could you imagine Philip? Like, well, I've never done this before. (laughs) Like, let's do it. And that should be the heart of every Christian. What should keep me from being baptized? What should keep me? If you have the opportunity and you physically can do it, be baptized. Be baptized. What should keep you? So what does John say about Christ? If if baptism isn't the necessity, he just kind of throws his hands up like it's water. 
to what? To just water. But notice how immediately, ooh, how quick. He, he, he doesn't waste any time to get into the authority behind putting people in water. He was not accountable to the Pharisees. Does he understand how big of a deal that is? Yeah, my, my authority doesn't come from you. I'm not here to please you. He derived his authority from a higher source, from the religious leaders of his day. Who gave him this right to baptize people? His authority. Now, this is what's so amazing, and John, just, John the gospel writer is so good at writing this. He's, his authority came from one standing in their midst. Now, can you imagine this for just a second? They are quizzing, I mean, interrogating John as to his identity. And the whole time, Jesus is sitting there, like, watching the conversation go happen. Going back and forth. This is amazing. And John's going to make a point of this. The gospel writer's going to make a point of this. He's standing there. Right there in the middle of this conversation. It was someone they didn't recognize. That has, is fear this morning. They didn't see. Wasn't looking for. They didn't recognize they were an authority. It's that, that word know and recognize is theologically rich. But none other than the Messiah of Israel was standing beside them the whole time they're interrogating John the Baptist. The Christ of God. The hope of every Israelite. Jesus of Nazareth is right there in the middle of that conversation. And they didn't see him. The emphatic ah you don't need an, um, uh, the, the word ah in the Greek. So it, when it's put in there, it's usually emphatic. He says, ah, baptized with water. May make the unwary reader remember the synoptic parable, where if you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar. As soon as John says, I baptize in water, if you've read those, those gospels enough, you'll, you'll remember he immediately goes, and there's one coming after me who will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons we don't call John a synoptic gospel is because he likes to depart from the kind of the tradition and say some things that he'll put details on or emphasize. Notice here, he says, I baptize with water and doesn't finish it with the Holy Spirit. Verse. He immediately goes to the supremacy of Jesus in all things. It's not that John depreciates the Holy Spirit baptism, he's going to talk about it in a couple of verses, but his point is this, the end of my, my water baptism is this next person coming. That if you don't get him, my baptism means nothing. You catch that? There's one greater than me. If you're, it's almost going to be like, if you're worried about me, get ready. Get ready. Our evangelist, the John, the, the gospel writer, he passes on right to the greatness of Jesus and just drops the subject of baptism. This should not be taken as indicating that he does not regard baptism as important. He does, but his baptism is not an end. It's a beginning. Its purpose is to point people to Christ. And John's interest is just Christ and nothing more. John 3, 25 through 30. Listen to how. This is just one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture. Pharisees come to John and John. Pharisees come to John the Baptist in John the Gospel writer, third chapter. And they tell John the Baptist, do you know there's a guy named Jesus who is outperforming you in baptisms? <laughs> Are you ready to hear John the Baptist's remark? I love this. It says, then a disciple arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the teacher, the one you testified about, you pointed us to, and who was with you across the Jordan, see he was there, is baptizing and everyone is going to him. They've left your church, John. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, 
but I've been sent ahead of him. And then he gives this beautiful illustration. He says, he who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, the best man, stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Do you see what he says? See, my job was just to hook them up. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I just wanted to get the bride of Jesus with Jesus, and then I just sit there like the best man, like, man, is this not awesome? I, I, I had something to do with this. But he goes, but think about this, guys, and if you're that guy, you ruined it. At a wedding, the best man's not the center of attention. In fact, if you are, you ruined the wedding, right? And that's his whole point. If we really are doing this right, we just kind of get out of the way, like they're together. Yep, that's it. That was his whole point the whole time. He goes, so I'm going to go away. And he takes over and takes the bride. He brings out the greatness, John does, of the one to come by talking about his personal unworthiness. He's not worthy to untie his shoe. Now, why is this such a big deal that, that John would say, I'm not worthy to unloose the strap on Jesus' sandals? I mean, they're cousins, ladies and gentlemen. To get the full impact of this, note this. During this time, disciples did many services for their rabbis or teachers. So students would serve their teachers or masters. That's what you'll hear them call. Teachers in ancient Palestine were not paid, okay? But in partial compensation, the, these students were in the habit of performing, performing small services for the rabbis that taught them. But they had to draw a line somewhere. Okay, so you couldn't just let them do anything. And one of the menial tasks of loosing the sandal thong came under this heading. There is a rabbinic saying, and it's dated from AD 250. That's when most, many of the oral traditions were written down. It says, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. Isn't that amazing? They can't, they're not allowed to do that. That's slaves' work. And John selects that very same task of the rabbinic saying and stresses that he was not worthy to do it. He's lower than a slave. That's what John says. I'm lower than a slave. The major people, I want to hit this theme and then we'll, we'll exit, is this concept of not knowing or not recognizing Jesus. How could he be standing there in the middle of them and just completely out of view? And John's already introduced the idea of what it means to know God in his this beautiful prologue. In John chapter 1, just go back one chapter with me. John chapter 1 verse 10. The, the, the pronoun he is in reference to the logos, the word, who is Jesus Christ in the flesh. All right, God in the flesh. It says he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was created through him. Now, this is so amazing because this is going to make so much sense. I need you to understand this. This is so mesmerizing. Jesus of Nazareth created you. He created you. And it goes on. And yet, the world did not recognize him. The creator walked among his creation, and the creation was oblivious to him. Keep going. He came to his own, that's the Israelites, his own family, and his own people, and they did not receive him. Now notice what happened. But to all who did receive him, acknowledge that he's the creator and savior he gave them the right or the power to be children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man but of God and what John's doing is he's giving us his first illustration of people where Jesus is literally standing there in their midst and they don't recognize in church, before we point too many fingers at the Pharisees and this delegation, we do it today. 
Write this down. Here's how preparation for Advent ends. It ends with knowing Him. To go through Advent season and go through Christmas and miss the cross is the epitome of not being prepared for Advent. Hearing all the messages about sin, the sacrifice of Jesus, his, his bloodshed and death on the cross and his resurrection, and not actually coming to recognize him as the creator and savior, you've missed the point. You, you don't understand what this season really is about. Jesus is not dead, he is alive, and he is spiritually in our midst today. He says, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, till time is no more. Do you know him? He stands here beside you spiritually. He stands in the preaching of his word to you. In his ordinance, in baptism, you're seeing him. In his communion, you're seeing him. When you're among other believers, you're seeing him. Jesus Christ is altogether in our midst. He is here now. And yet he is a stranger to some of us. What are you talking about? (laughs) Christ has become a stranger in the hearts of many Christians who allow themselves to be ruled by their passions and whose thoughts and desires are occupied with the things of the world. And I think that's ultimately why the Pharisees were blind to Jesus. It says their hearts, this is in John chapter 3, love darkness rather than light. They liked their evil deeds. They liked their promise, uh, their prominence in Israel. They were not about to give that up for anything, even if the truth was staring them right in the face. I'm not going to give it up. They do not mention his name in prayer, Jesus. His gospel is not on their lips. Their lives are unfaithful to his teaching. Jesus has become a stranger to them. And I would just encourage you as John, if John the Baptist were standing here today, he would say, repent and know the one who stands right here beside you. Had John spoken, and I believe this, had John went out there and preached no need of repentance, And that Jesus was going to free Israel from the hateful yoke of Roman oppression. And that Jesus would make the Pharisees rich and powerful. No doubt they would have listened with pleasure and been happy to serve such a king. Oh, that Jesus? Yeah, where's he at? But if wealth could not be gained, ambition could not be gratified, or immediate plans furthered. They would spare no labor or pains in searching for him. Did you catch what happened? He actually says, this is the irony. He's standing right here. You would think the next part, then they interrogated everybody in the crowd. Right? No, what do they do? Just go away. Why? Because he wasn't a threat to their influence yet. When he appears, they're like, who's this guy? They had neutralized John. He's talking about somebody that probably doesn't exist, right? And they walk away. For the salvation of their soul, they would walk away. Did you catch that? John's saying salvation has come. Eh, I've got better things to do. The account concludes with these words. And again, John, John's writing this gospel in his late 80s, probably 90s. He has had a lot of time to think about all the details of Jesus' life. He's getting a very mature gospel. And notice what John, John doesn't leave any word to chance. He goes, hey, this happened at the Bethany of Crossville. Now, again, we think, kind of think it's a geographical note. If it was in the book of Luke, I would say, yeah, he's just trying to be a great historian. John always is like, I got something to say about that, (laughs) right? We should not confuse this Bethany, and and John wants to make it clear, with the Bethany that is near Jerusalem. It's the hometown of Martha, Mary, and a guy named Lazarus. Now, in John's gospel, if you follow it from here to John chapter 11, when Jesus goes to Nazareth, 
It is the end of Jesus's, I mean, uh, Bethany, it's the end of Jesus's ministry in John. John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead at Bethany, immediately afterwards, he goes straight to Jerusalem. And it's this whole talk, right, of the washing the disciples' feet. You have this great discourse about the Holy Spirit. But it, from John chapter 12 on, Jesus is marching to his death and crucifixion. So the ministry of Jesus in the book of John is a snapshot from John chapter 1 to John chapter 11. And notice what's bookended there. The Bethany across the Jordan and the Bethany near Jerusalem. The site of this Bethany that's across the Jordan is debated. As early as A.D. 200, Origen, he's an early church father, he visited Palestine and couldn't quite pin it down. He couldn't find it. But here's what some traditions say, that this Bethany was probably run down. You can't find it today. was probably the site that is opposite of Jericho. This Bethany was the spot where Joshua in the Old Testament took the chosen people of Israel into the promised land across the Jordan. And according to John, this is the very spot in which Jesus would be baptized and start his ministry. Bethany, for John, is his Bethlehem. This is John's Bethlehem. It all begins and ends at Bethany. And what's the other parallel? This Bethany is the interest of Joshua, Jesus, our Messiah, who will lead his people through the Jordan to inherit the real promised land. Bethany's special mention in this text serves as an admonition to us now in this holy season. We must by faith descend into the river Jordan, believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave, and we should come up out of the water, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And so, like Israel of old with Joshua, we will march with Jesus right into our heavenly homeland. From Bethany to Bethany, Jesus' first advent is all about knowing him. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Today may be your first introduction to church, Jesus, the book of John. I know it's kind of a tough introduction to the church because John the Baptist specifically just confronts you with your sin, but it isn't about whether you're Gentile or Jew, religious, not religious, if you have a great background or upbringing or not. That's all immaterial. Everybody is humble before God in their sin. And the Bible calls everyone to repentance, no matter what, who you are. All of us are sinners, and we're all in need of a Savior. And, and Advent calls us to rem remember that. And that God in his great grace and love has sent a Savior for us. And to not terminate this season in knowing Jesus is, I mean, again, the epitome of missing the point. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I tell you, Jesus is in our midst. It's not make-believe. He was dead. He's alive. He's the Son of God. Lives forevermore. And he hears our thoughts and whispers. And if you're ready to call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, for salvation, I just want to teach you a prayer. Again, again, this is something that happens in your heart, in your soul, and is signified by other things, okay, outside, in the exterior, not the interior. But if you're ready to confess to Jesus, you are a sinner, and commit your life to him, to entrust yourself to him, for forgiveness and eternal life. Would you just simply pray this prayer after me silently in your heart? Just say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner and I deserve judgment. But I believe your, your love for me, that you came down for me. You lived a sinless life and you died on the cross for all my sins. And God raised you from the dead with the Lord. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Be my Savior one day. I give my life to you.
with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to call you to what the Bible calls you to do. Be baptized. Be baptized. Show the church and the world that you publicly believe and identify with Jesus' death for your sins and his resurrection for your forgiveness and eternal life. Be marked out, right, as someone who says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. If you've never been baptized, fill out that tariff panel on the back of uh, the bulletin, text the lead to our text and church number, or go to our website and click on the baptism tab. All right? And just give me the opportunity to talk to you about obedience to Christ and baptism. The last thing I want us to say, and Stacy, you can begin to pray. Uh, play. I want to, to pray over you. A, 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 it's an adapted prayer from a Lutheran prayer companion for this Advent season. And I pray this over you, and I would implore you to pray something along those lines that parallels it. It says, O Lord God, Heavenly Father, it behooves us to thank you that you first instituted by John the Baptist the blessed gift of baptism, which reminds us of the forgiveness of our sins, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the gift of eternal life for the sake of your beloved Son, Christ Jesus. We beg you to sustain us in such confidence in your grace and mercy that we may never doubt, but in various tribulations take comfort in our baptism. Grant us also by your Holy Spirit that we may avoid sin and remain in innocence. And whenever we may fall and in our human weakness cannot rise again, that we may not remain lying in sin, but may by true repentance turn away from it and take comfort again in your promise. And so by your grace obtain eternal salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Will you pray that prayer? Father, we echo the sentiment of this song. We do pray that you would open our eyes so that we may see Jesus. Lord, we're not looking for a visible manifestation of your Son. We know that when he returns, it'll be with that trumpet sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we'll meet you in the air. So Lord, we do long um, to know his presence in our midst. Lord, we recognize that there are things in our sinful hearts that we don't want to see a Savior for. We don't want to have a Savior in here and, and, and say, I can forgive you of that and change your heart. We, we love our sin too much. And so we ask for this gift of repentance and faith. Every good gift comes from you, God. Help us to repent of our sin and to totally rest in Christ alone for forgiveness and transformation. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people said. Amen. All right, just got a couple of quick announcements for you guys, and then we'll read a brief story, and then Brother Rick's going to um, lead us in one last song. I do want to remind you again, if you want to be baptized, we will be, be delighted to baptize you. If you figure out any of the social distancing guidelines, you just be uh, sure to fill out the appropriate boxes and text to leave or go to our uh, website and fill that out. We would love to, to be able to baptize you here. Uh, don't forget to RSVP your spots at church. Again, I don't know how things will work out with the virus, but next Sunday is the, you know, the Sunday before Christmas. So please RSVP ASAP. 
if you can, um, if you can, fill out the Sheriff's panel, check the box on the back. There's a, there's a place where you can reserve the next two Sundays if you want, and then drop it in the drop box, and I'll manually enter them. If not, text RSVB to our text and church number, or you can go to our website and click reserve. Don't forget about child dedication the Sunday following next Sunday, the 27th, okay? Uh, you can text kids to our text and church number. You can also, if you go to our website, mpcommodennis.com, I think if you hover over the home tab, child dedication should appear, and you can read about it there and also fill out the form uh, in order to uh, let us know. So feel free to do either one. And then don't forget about Christmas for Jesus. Two names, right, still remain. So uh, get a hold of Rachel, text Jesus. Or, uh, again, not the person, right, just the name, okay? And then, uh, and then bring your gifts to uh, the church next Sunday morning, all right? So uh, put them in this first Sunday school classroom over here to my left. And don't forget our Lottie Moon missions offering. I know it's a ton. Just throw them. Uh, before you do your devotions every day, read over the bulletin so you know it. Uh, but we, our goal is 5000 and we would really much uh, like to, uh, to, do, to reach that goal. And then um, don't forget about Sunday school next week. You don't have to RSVP for that. Brother Danny, you teaching? Uh, Brother Danny will be teaching next Sunday. Uh, meet us in the fellowship hall at 10 o'clock, all right? Um, I want to read this story to you about this song we're about to sing. It's one of my favorite Christmas carols. Uh, one of America's best-known poets, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, contributed to the host of Christmas carols sung each Christmas season when he wrote a poem on December 25th, Christmas Day, 1864. On July 10th of 1861, so three or four years earlier, Longfellow's wife, Frances, was fatally burned in an accident in their home. The first Christmas after her death, Longfellow wrote, how inexpressibly sad are all holidays when you lose a loved one. Almost a year later in Long, uh, Longfellow, uh, received word that his oldest son, Charles, who was a lieutenant in the Civil War, had been severely wounded with a bullet passing under his shoulder blades and severely injuring his spine. The Christmas of 1863 was silent in his journal. He had nothing to say. But then on December 25th, 1864, and I believe this was at uh, his son's bedside as he was still helping him, uh, but it was early on Christmas morning he wrote this poem and they eventually set it to words. It's a beautiful song. Here we go. And it should give us all hope because it kind of feels that way, don't it, around Christmas this particular year. So let's stand and take that home with you and read that poem. We're going to sing, sing the whole song, all five verses. And see. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.